For our time this morning, we're going to be focusing on uh, one more week on the resurrection. Seeing as we're in resurrection season, this is a resurrection time of year, it feels just doesn't feel right just to blow past it. And we'll return to ne- uh, Luke next week. The reason I want to do this is because there's so much richness to the implications of the resurrection in our own lives. There's just so much here. And this week as I was reading and studying and preparing, I was just overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus and what he's done for us in the resurrection. And I realized that there's, there's a lifetime of meditation and understanding of what it is he's done for us and the implications of that for our lives. So this morning, we'll look at some of those this mor- in this text in Romans. So before we do, let us pray and ask for God's grace. Father, we look to you for mercy. We look to you for help. We look to you to supply all our needs and open our eyes and our ears that we might see Jesus in his fullness, in his glory, that we might see ourselves and understand who we are and what you've done in light of Jesus. Help us, Father. Help us. And be with us and change us, for we ask us in Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, the resurrection has tremendous impact on the way we live day to day. Yet we live in a time in the church when it's conflicted, I think, about the resurrection not to come, but the resurrection and its implications here and now today. And the reason I say that is because... There are many in the church that say different things about the state of the Christian and what what our existence is here and now like. There are some who say we're merely forgiven sinners. Others say that we're simultaneously sinner and saint. Some say we're saints who sin, while others say that we are saints and don't think true Christians sin. You get the gamut. And people will teach and proclaim all of these. And what's interesting is that the resurrection has implications to this issue. What is the right answer? Who are we? And what has happened as a result of the work of Jesus here and now? This passage in Romans is remarkable because it it seriously addresses this issue unlike any other place in Scripture. The details, the way Paul meticulously walks through what Jesus has done for us, and what that means for our lives and how we should live. He just carefully walks like a master theologian, parsing every single little particular. This book is loaded. Martin Lloyd-Jones took 12 years to preach through Romans. (laughs) He would pull the whole Bible through a verse, you know. I would. I actually. I wanted to to try to handle Romans six through eight this morning, and it was just too much. It was like drinking from a fire hose. It was no way. <laughs> so we're going to focus on chapter six this morning. And what's interesting about this chapter six is how it fits in the context. Paul has spelt, spent this time in chapters one and two, showing how that all men are under sin, actually one through three, how all men everywhere are under sin, are condemned, either apart from the law as a Gentile or under the law as a Jew. There is no salvation under the law, 
And there is no salvation apart from Christ. And then he talks about, in chapter 4, about, the, the, about faith and how we're made righteous in Christ through faith. And that was his big point there. And in chapter 5, he talks about how the difference between sin and grace and, and being in Adam and being Christ and this grand difference about these covenantal heads. And then he, he gets to the end of chapter 5, and he says something interesting that we know is going to spark their minds and ask a particular question. If you look at verse 20 in Romans chapter 5, he says, Now the law came, into, came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So do you see what he's saying? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So if, it, if sin causes grace to increase or grace to be glorified, what might be the natural question? So Paul's already jumping ahead. He says, I know what you're thinking. What he says in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? What? That grace may abound. It's a logical connection. If my sin, a sin increased with the, with the law... It caused transgression to increase, and as transgression increased, because now men become very aware of their sin, he says, as it increased, grace increases all the more, because the more grace is needed to cover the sin. Oh, I get how it works. More sin, more grace, glorifies grace. Therefore, we should probably, if we sin, wouldn't it continue to increase grace? Paul says, I got you. I know where you're going. I know what you're thinking. And then he responds in chapter, in verse 2, sorry. He says, by no means. And then he gives the reason why. By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Huh? And he says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. By no means. Why? He says, okay, you need to understand something. You've been united to Christ. And by the very fact that you've been united to Christ, it changes you. You've been changed. So that would be true if nothing happened. But no, here, look, something's happened. Jesus' Jesus's death and resurrection made us free from sin and death. Look in verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. When Paul uses this language as old self, he is referring to the inward man, this old self that was in us. 
that was in bondage to sin. It's what sin, uh, theologians sorry, call the sinful nature. Have you heard of that before, the sinful nature? Uh, many people use that expression, and they use it actually of Christians even now today, like in their current state, after becoming Christians. And he says, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said this, that we are dead, that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. But God made us alive together with Christ. So we were by nature children of wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our nature is also a reference to our heart, this, this inward person, this, this old self he's referring to. And as Jeremiah promised or prophesied about in the New Covenant, God was going to do what? God was going to take the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh in the New Covenant. He was going to change our hearts. And this is what Paul is referring to here as the old self. We know that our old self was crucified with him. And he says something else here. In order that what would happen? Now he's reasoning. Our old self was crucified with him that something might happen. What was it? What does he say? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What's this body of sin all about? What's he saying here? This is what this body of sin, this is what Jesus took care of in the cross and us being united to him. This body of sin is, again, this inward person, this fundamental problem in man. Fundamental in every single person born in Adam is this problem of sin and sin in this this body of sin which dwells in this old self that was crucified in the inward man. And it's a reason why man doesn't do any good and why he's prone to evil and why he's perverted, twisted, given to all kinds of lusts, hateful, murderous, a backbiter, selfish, indulgent, a robber, and seeking his own interests. Why? Because this body of sin that dwells in him, man is a sinner, and a sinner by nature. Man is a slave to sin. He doesn't just sin in action, like saying, here's a commandment, I transgressed that commandment, therefore I sinned. Man is a sinner by nature. And this is what he means by this phrase, this body of sin. He crucified the old self so that this body of sin might be done away with. Because if this is not dealt with, if this is not taken care of, man will do nothing but sin continually. This is who he is. Man is not good. People are not good. People don't do good. People are sinful in their nature. So they're not as, here's what I'm not saying. They're not as bad as they are evil and as wicked as they possibly could be. But they still are selfish, lustful, indulgent. And sometimes man appears to do some good things, but he does it for himself. So we have different degrees of evil and different degrees of manifestations of sin. But man is fundamentally sinful. He doesn't seek God. He doesn't turn towards God. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love others, ultimately in the biblical sense. What man does is looks out for himself. This is what people do, right? People look out for themselves. They lust, they covet, they want, they desire. 
all kinds of things, and, and they do this perpetually. He goes on to explain why this body of sin, this old self, must be crucified. He keeps on giving reasons. So he starts off, we know that our old self was crucified in order that, in order that what? The body of sin might be done, done, uh, brought to nothing, which is this nature. And then he says, so that, gives another reason, so that we no longer, what does he say next? We would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the reason why our old self had to be crucified with Christ is because it's the only way that we could be free from this bondage of sin. It's the only way. Our only hope as one who was enslaved to sin and was by nature a sinner was to die. Dying was the only hope. To crucify the old self, to bring the body of sin in our hearts to nothing, and to free us from the bondage and slavery we have to sin. So, our being united to Christ in his death meant the death of sin in the inward man. This was the only way to to remove the law of sin and death required the payment of death. Dying pays for the penalty of sin, and it deals with it. Dying deals with it. And the thing is, until that's dealt with, until that sin is dealt with, we're enslaved, and we can't do anything but sin. And this is what his argument is here. R.C. Sproul uses the analogy of a lion, and I've used this one before. Any of you have heard this one? It's a great one. If you think of a lion, it is by nature what? A carnivore, right? Which means it's a meat-eater. And even though it has the capacity and the ability to eat grass, it could take grass, stuff it in its mouth, and chew it and swallow it, it won't. Why? It's contrary to its nature, right? It, it would die if it's starved to death and if there's no meat because it's, it's a meat eater. That's what it is by nature. By very nature it is. In like manner... Man is a sinner by nature. We are sinners by nature and therefore incapable of acting righteously in any way. So if a person remains in their sin, they cannot and will not do anything righteous before God at all. Why can they not? It's contrary to who they are. It's contrary to their nature. They are by nature a sinner. They, they're enslaved to it. It's, it's their master. As Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 6, if you bump down to verse 20, he says, he talks about this slave issue. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to what? Righteousness. Now, why does he say that? When you were a slave to sin, you were free, and it says you had no ability. You, you couldn't pursue righteousness. You couldn't do anything righteous at all. Not Nada. Verse 22, 22, however. But now that you have been set free from sin and become a slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. But now there's a transition. Something happened, right? Something changed. What has happened? 
You've been set free from sin and become a slave to God and now can produce fruits of righteousness. So, he's not done yet. If you go back to to verse 6, he's piling on reasons. And so, the old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And then he goes on, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then verse 7, for one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now he's giving the explanation. Do you realize that word, freed from sin? That's... Freed is, is justified. Everywhere else in the New Testament except two other places, whatever it has the word Greek word ju- for justified, it's translated justified. But here it's translated freed because it's, it's a little bit of an awkward statement. To, to say it, watch how, listen how it sounds when you put it in there. No one who has died has been set, uh, sorry, no one who has died has been justified from sin. And so it's like, that sounds confusing. Let's... Let's clarify this and say freed from sin. But I think actually justified from sin is a good way of putting it. Because justified from sin is, to be, is the same as saying it's been paid for, it's been taken care of. You are now in a righteous state because of what death has done. He who has died has been justified from sin. Once it is paid, sin no longer holds anything over you. It no longer controls you. It no longer has a claim on you. you. What's the debt? What is the debt owed? The wages for sin is what? Death. So once the debt has been paid, death, the sin has been justified, is basically what he's saying. It pays the debt. Death pays the debt. Here's an example. I'm indebted to the bank for my house. I wish I wasn't, but I am. And I won't be free from that debt until the day I pay the last payment. I pay that last, on the last day and I pay the payment, I am free. I no longer owe any debt. It is fully mine. The bank is done, gone away. It's now mine. No longer theirs. And in life, when we have debts, Personal debts, have you, any of you guys incurred debt? I bet you have, right? All of us have debt of some sort. When we have a debt, you're not free until the required debt is paid. Once the debt's paid, then you're free from that debt. It's no longer held over you at all. The problem with the debt sin owes is that it has a payment that once I make it, I'm doomed. Right? It's final. Why? I'm dead. It'd be kind of like making the last payment on my house, and then as soon as I did it, it exploded. Oh, that was great. So much for the debt. Now I have to figure out how to get my house back. Death is what makes the payment of sin eternal and final. Because once you die, how do you come back to life again? We're being led somewhere, right? You would have to figure out a way to pay the debt and then come back to life again. And this is precisely what Jesus did. He paid the debt 
what justifies from sin, justifies sin. It's now declared, paid, done. It's been justified. And then he comes back to life again. And this is required. The resurrection is absolutely necessary for his payment of death on the cross to be efficacious, for it to, have, for, for it to come full circle, for us to like pay the penalty and then come back to life so now we have life again. And this is how Paul puts it. This is exactly what he goes on to say. If you look at verses 8 through 11. Now, he says in verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So here he's saying here, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. Death will no longer can touch him or have dominion over him. It's been paid. And now he beat it, conquered, and raised from the dead. So if it weren't from the resurrection, the debt would be paid, but we wouldn't be any better off, would we? Do you see that? If it wasn't for the resurrection, the debt's paid, but we're not better off because we're still dead. We need new life. We need to be brought to life again. Death wouldn't, would be, uh, would, it's fine as a payment. It's great as a payment, but it's no way to live. Because you're dead. Death pays the penalty for sin, but the resurrection brings a new life we need. So we don't remain in death. Now, here's the argument. So Paul is saying, you have been united to Christ. Do you realize that when Christ died, because you're union with him, you died? If you belong to Christ, you have died. And you've died to sin. You've paid the price for sin in Christ. And Christ is raised from the dead. In like manner, you've been raised with him to new life. And the life you have, you live to God. So this is why he goes on to argue, as a result of this reality, we therefore, we therefore do not let sin rule in our mortal bodies. Listen to what he says. Therefore, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 12. Therefore. What's it? It's a transitional word, right? It's transitioning from this truth based on what has just, just been said. This is the conclusion that we draw from that. We're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. One of the things that's important to understand is that we are only free from sin in the inward man, the inward person. We are not free from sin in our, from our mortal bodies. And we have to understand this, what's going on. What Jesus did internally is not what happens externally until the resurrection. And that is why Paul says here in verse 12, we are not to let sin rule in our mortal bodies because it will make you obey its passions. The mortal, do you realize the word mortal, mortal bodies? Mortal means that it's, it's dying. It's able to die. It's mortal. If... You know, if you ever watch the comic movies, if you have an immortal, it means someone who's incapable of dying. You put a bullet through them and they, they just can't, it's ineffective. They don't die. They're immortal. They can't die. But if somebody is mortal, that means that they, they will and can die. 
And so this mortal body is this dying body, this decaying body, as he's referring to here. And he's saying so that our outward persons have not yet died and been resurrected, right? Have any of you guys experienced the resurrection bodily? No, nobody has, except for Jesus and those he's raised from the dead. But the final resurrection, when these bodies are raised from the grave, that's to come when Christ returns and and the resurrection happens. These bodies are still subject to sin and death. So, what does this mean? In our flesh, we have, we still have plenty of passions, desires, and lusts that have no regard for God. None. And only want their own pleasure. Sin is still natural to our flesh. Passion, lust, greed, pride, and the list goes on. Still very natural to our flesh, which is in our mortal body. However, here's the good part. Because Jesus resurrected the most essential part first, the inward man, we're able to present our members as instruments of righteousness, which he says here. He tells us not only that we're to present them as instruments of righteousness, he says, do not present your, uh, your, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, the opposite. Present them to righteousness and do not present them f- for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to life, death from life, sorry, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. This is how we are to live as Christians in a conflicted person. Because in the inward man, we're made new. We're raised to newness of life. Free and not enslaved to sin, desiring God to obey him and to obey his commands and to go after him. Yet outwardly, we have passions in our bodies. We have lust that doesn't regard God at all. In that that particular issue, the issue of us being in this particular state, we have to wonder, we now wonder about issues of sanctification, of the law, and how does this work? How does this play itself out? And this is what Paul goes on to do in chapter 7. He talks about the place of the law and what it's ha- what's happening and why, and why it was good and how it's effective in our lives. And then he goes on in chapter 8 to talk about uh, life according to the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And there's some amazing stuff in there. What's interesting here, if you look at verse 14, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul makes a particular statement. A statement here about what he's... He comes to a conclusion about what he's been saying about the reality of Christians. The fact that we're in Christ. And in Christ, we've been raised from the dead, newness of life. Yet we live in these bodies, that we, and, and, and in these bodies we must subject our members to righteousness. And as we do that, he says, we, when we do that, we have to understand something. We have to, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now this is a fascinating statement, an incredibly fascinating statement. 
You're not under law, but under grace, which he actually talks about in the previous chapters, and he details, he expresses in great detail. But what's, what is really amazing is to understand, when we fully understand what it means to be under grace and not under the law, it's one of the most liberating truths we could ever understand. Because when you understand that you're not under law and under the law of sin and death, but you're under the law of grace and under Christ and in, his, in, in Him, and you understand that, that what that means by implication for you, it, you come to this, this grand realization that, wow, there is no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. None. The law cannot point its finger at you. Satan cannot point his finger at you. Nobody can point his finger at you and say guilty. Why? Because the only thing that does that and can do that is the law. But if you've died, the law required, yes, I've sinned and I must die for my sin. And yeah, I sinned and I died for my sin and now I've been raised to newness of life. It has no more power to do that. I'm no longer under the law. I'm under grace. And grace, what does grace mean? God's unmerited favor and blessing upon you. You didn't do a thing to deserve it. In fact, all you did was sin. And in light of that, I pour out my favor and my goodness upon you. That's quite an amazing law to live under, isn't it? And so over here, under the law as given to Moses... The law given to Adam. What did it say? Even the first law given to Adam. The moment you eat of this, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the moment you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages for sin is death. So living under that law, do you know what you you get? You get a finger pointed at you and says, you know what you guys all are? You know what you are? Guilty. Every one of you. You've all sinned. Do you know what you, des- you deserve because of that sin? Death. That's the payment for that sin. You can raise your hand and say, paid in full. Amen. Paid in full. What are you talking about? I died with Christ. I'm no longer under this, this law. But I'm under Grace. I'm raised to newness of life. Oh, okay, now I get it. Okay, I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace. Woo, this is looking really good. This is sounding good. And you know if you preach this properly, and if people are starting to get it, their minds start becoming free and thinking, man, I can just sin. It doesn't matter. There's no condemnation. Whoa, this is looking good. Paul knows you're going there. He knows you're going there. Look at verse 15. Right after he says this, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? I knew you were going to ask. Because it seems so free. When you understand that, you're like, wow, there's no condemnation. Under under the law in Adam, there was condemnation. The wage of sin was death, and that has been, I paid it. And now I'm under grace. This is looking good. Right? But again, he's, he knows it's kind of a repeat of the question he asked at the beginning of chapter 6. Shall we 
Continuing sin that grace may abound. He asks a similar question. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. And then he goes on to explain a very similar answer to what he gave before. And what is that answer? What is the answer to why not? Well, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves. He says, now, if you present yourselves as a slave, if you're a slave to that one, that's the one you obey. But thanks be to God that that's not, you're no longer a slave. You were a slave, a slave to sin and death. You were. But you're no longer a slave. You've been set free. The death and the resurrection of Jesus changes something about you fundamentally. He says, but thanks be to, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you were, you who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And why? Again, he just reiterates this, right? Verse 20, for you were slaves of sin. This is who you were. And when you were, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time of these things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Do you see his argument? Again, he reiterates reiterates what he's saying, has been saying. If we get the gospel, if we understand what is ours in Christ because of his death and his resurrection, it looks so good, it's so creamy, it's so juicy, it's so amazing, it's so like, wow! I am absolutely forgiven. My debt has fully been paid. Whoo! That's amazing. And there's now, therefore, no condemnation. Who can condemn me? Who could bring a sin against me? Find the person. Find anybody. If you could find a sin in my life, which you can, you can't condemn me with it. Why? Paid in full. I'm free from the law of sin and death. I'm under grace. Wow, that's good. Does that mean then I can pretty much do what I want? Yeah, except that now what you want has changed. Jesus did something in his death and resurrection that changed your very nature. He changed your heart. He dealt with the body of sin. He dealt with the thing that enslaved you. And now you're free. But wait a second, Dean, free? I'd have another couple questions in here. I'd throw in there and interject. Wait a second, Paul. Okay, I'm following you. But what about the fact that so often I don't feel free? What's the deal that when I'm tempted to sin, I have lust, I have passions, I struggle with pride. What's with the struggle? (laughs) What's going on? 
Well, yeah, wait, wait a second. It's because you have not been fully resurrected. You are still in your body of death, your mortal body. You are still in a body that is full. It, it is fully addicted to sin. You're still in a body that is still in need of the resurrection to be free from that. So like Galatians puts it, right? Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, if I can find, I have a... I know I have it here. Galatians 5. Let me paraphrase it. Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the flesh and the spirit struggling against one another. You do not do the things that you want to do. And why don't you do them? Because the spirit struggles against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. You are in a struggle. And you will be until the day you die. You will struggle. And you will have desires in you that can be inflamed and can lead you into sin and unrighteousness. Where's that coming from? That's from your mortal body, from your flesh, as the Bible calls it. Your fl- that still remains, that needs to be resurrected. And so what are, we, what are you to do as a result of this? How are you to live? You're to subject your members to, to be instruments of righteousness and not unrighteousness. Do you know what that means? Your members. What are your members? Your eyes, your ears, your hands, your mouth. All your different members, you submit them to righteousness. And Jesus took care of the central part, your heart, that allows you to do that. And if you submit your members to righteousness instead of unrighteousness, you are then able at that point to not arouse the flesh and to walk according to the Spirit. But if you submit your members to unrighteousness, you will end up walking and following and awaken those passions and follow them into unrighteousness. Here's the deal. We are people who have, we often submit our members to the wrong kinds of things. A Christian who puts a pornographic image before their eyes, or a Christian who listens to tasty gossip, or a Christian who watches shows that make fornication and adultery a good thing, or a Christian who reads books that pervert the truth, is presenting his or her members as instruments of unrighteousness and arousing the flesh to make them obey its passions. And this is sinful and wrong. We get ourselves into more trouble because we put before our eyes, our ears, our hands, our mouths, ungodly and unrighteous things. And what happens when you do that? You arouse them. You arouse the passions in your flesh and they end up taking over. Instead, we need to set before our eyes, before our ears, before our mouths, before our hands, before ourselves, that which is good and righteous. Submitting those members to righteousness. Because when you do that, when you set your mind on things above... And when you think about what is good, true, noble, and right, and you set your eyes before these things, and you set your ears before these things, you strengthen the inward man, and the, and the members of your body are submitted to righteousness, and you can walk according to the Spirit. People who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh are careful to not arouse the flesh. 
Those who walk according to the flesh and not according to the spirit are those who are not so careful and put tasty morsels in front of themselves and find the passions aroused and they go after it. But for a Christian, it shouldn't be so. This is what Paul is saying. You don't understand people. You are free. You are free from sin and death. You've been resurrected in Christ and the inward man. Walk according to the spirit. Walk according to the inward man. And be renewed in, the, in your mind. Be, be strengthened by the things that you place before your members. And put off sin. Put it off by stopping the temptations that come in your way. And of course, temptations come at times that you, can't ha- you have nothing to say about. They just come. But if you've been walking in the Spirit and strengthening the inward man, you'll find at those times you're strong instead of weak. Children of God, do you realize this? Jesus' death and resurrection has changed your life. Changed you completely. It impacts everything. And you can leave here today rejoicing in who you are in Christ and what he's done for you and realize, wow, I have been given resurrection life. And it lives in me. And you can go and walk according to righteousness by submitting your members to righteousness and cutting off the unrighteousness. And as you do that, God's goodness, God's grace, and the power of the resurrection is made manifest in your life. Amen. Father, thank you so much for the grace that is ours in Christ. How you've loved us with a love that's beyond comparison. Thank you that you have blessed us beyond belief, by uniting us to Christ in his death and his resurrection, and so that the life we live, we live to you, and that you are glorified and enjoyed and delighted in, and we are set free, and we praise you for that. Amen.